I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, my guest today was on the now infamous call with President Donald J. Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger on Saturday, January 2nd, 2021, during which then-President Trump asked Raffensperger, quote, So look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. As a result of her being on that call, her law firm was harassed by a group of angry callers many of whom demanded they cancel her. The result was she resigned her position as partner and stepped down from a law firm where she had worked for two decades. Now she's here to tell her side of the story about the phone call and the election in Georgia and to talk about the left's cancel culture mentality. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Cleta Mitchell. She's a longtime friend and a champion for conservatives. She just recently left her position as partner at Foley and Lardner where she worked for 20 years. Cleta Mitchell has been a attorney specializing in political law. She worked on the Georgia state election fraud case for the 2020 election. She has been fighting back against cancel culture, but more importantly, she has been consistently conservative and has been just a tower of strength for most Republicans and most conservatives around the country. Cleta is from Oklahoma originally, and she started out as a Democrat, serving as a member of the Oklahoma House of Representatives from 1978 to 1984. 
Why did you switch to Republican? Well, Newt, and thank you so much for having me. You played a role in that. You probably don't remember the first time I met you. I was a fellow at the Institute of Politics at Harvard in the fall of 1981. And so was my dear friend, your dear friend, Eddie Mai. And Eddie and I became fast friends that fall at Harvard. And I began to talk to Eddie and talk to some others. And I was living in Oklahoma at the time, had that fellowship, I was in the legislature. But I began to see basically the federal occupation of Oklahoma during the 80s. And I married a Republican, Dale Mitchell. He also always says that he helped with my conversion as well. But I began to realize and watch what the federal government was doing to the banks in Oklahoma and to industry in Oklahoma. That's a whole topic for another day. But I began to realize that a government big enough to take care of all of us is big enough to destroy any one of us anytime it chooses. And I just began to realize that what I believed as a philosophy politically was at odds with what I knew. I had been taught the principles of raising children to be self-sufficient and independent, and that all of these programs that were handouts were really creating a culture of dependency that benefited a political class, and that was the Democrats. And so I just thought, you know, both of these sets of beliefs can't be right. One has to be wrong. And I ended up going with the biblical and personal principles I'd been raised to believe. And then I never looked back. And then I think I ended up moving to Washington at Eddie's behest to work on term limits for members of Congress, which was part of the contract with America, and watched all the Democrats and all the special interests who want to centralize power in Washington. They don't want diffuse power. And it was a conversion process, but I changed my party registration in 1995. So I've always said I was a byproduct of your revolution. So given the time period you're describing, what impact, if any, did Reagan have on you? Well, you know, it wasn't so much Reagan, honestly. It was you. It was what you were saying. When I got to Washington and I saw what the National Democrats were up to, which was very different than what they portrayed back home. And I just began to realize that the powers that be in Washington and the Democratic Party were such that you could say whatever you wanted to back home, but when you got to Washington, you were going to toe the mark. And what they had done was become the party of government. I guess really that's what got to me. Democrats always say we're the party of the people. I don't even think they say that anymore. But what I realized is that they equate the government with the people. And those are two different things. And we've seen this change, and they are the party of government. As part of this process, you end up with a significant role with the National Rifle Association. How did that happen? I was counsel to the National Term Limits Legal Institute and co-counsel in the case that went to the Supreme Court in 1995 on term limits. It was a five to four decision against term limits. And regardless of how you feel about the issue itself, there were 23 million Americans who had voted for constitutional referenda and initiatives across the country to impose term limits on their congressional delegations. Clarence Thomas's dissent in that case is one of the best expositions on the Tenth Amendment and the powers reserved to the states and the people. After that case, you know, my little term limits legal institute really, there was no reason to continue. 
with that. And so I went into private law practice and had a small firm doing political law, campaign finance, election law, ethics, lobbying, the, the business and regulation of politics and policy. And when the McCain-Feingold bill was going through Congress starting in the late 90s and on through 2000 and 2001, I was very actively involved in trying to fight it. And at the time, so was Wayne LaPierre. He understood that if the First Amendment is eviscerated, the Second Amendment won't be far behind. And so we became friends. I was on his radio show in the fall of 2000 after the election. And we became friends. And I became friends with Millie Hallow, who worked still at the NRA and with Ralph Hallow. And Wayne wanted me to help the NRA and be part of the legal team to fight McCain-Feingold after George W. Bush, unfortunately, signed it into law. So that's how I got involved with the NRA. You were very active with the NRA for a long time. Yes, I was. I was involved first as co-counsel in the McCain-Feingold case, and that was in 2000, 2001, 2002. And then I was on several committees for the NRA, the nominating committee and a couple of other committees. And then I was elected to the board and served on the board until 2012. So really for about 12 or 14 years, I was involved with the NRA and still remain good friends with everyone over there. I think one of my earliest recollections is just how dynamic you were and how incisive your understanding of things was. It was really remarkable to watch you work. Now, you begin to get to know Trump in 2011 in a situation that most Americans never knew about, where Trump had put together a exploratory committee. He didn't just pop out of the blue in 2016. He'd been thinking about running for a good while and actually tested the waters in 2012 and apparently had a complaint made against him by the Federal Election Commission about the way in which he had organized the website shouldtrumprun.com. And you ended up being involved in that lawsuit. Was that your first real relationship with Trump? Yes, it was. There was a complaint filed against him saying that he had used corporate resources and had either he or Michael Cohen had flown to Iowa on the Trump corporate plane and had meetings regarding the potential for a candidacy. And therefore, all of that was a violation of federal law because you can't use corporate funds, et cetera. They retained me to represent them in, before the Federal Election Commission. And I argued that he wasn't a federal candidate. He was a citizen. He never became a candidate. And if you don't become a candidate, then none of the rules actually apply. And the commission agreed and dismissed the case. But I actually had not met him until about two years later. And Chris Ruddy, the publisher and owner of Newsmax, introduced me to President Trump, then Mr. Trump, in 2014. He didn't run in 2012, I think, because he re-signed a fairly large contract with NBC for The Apprentice. But it was pretty clear to me when I met him, and such a gracious person, you know him far better than I do personally, but such a gracious person in private and kind. I had the feeling that he was definitely going to run. At this time, he was really going to do it. He was so worried about the country. If you talk to him today, which I have in the last couple of weeks, the first thing he wants to talk about is his concern about all the jobs 
that the current administration and Congress are costing people all over the country. Jack Armstrong, he's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. So as part of your relationship with Trump, you ended up being involved in the whole question of the Georgia election results. And then that became quite controversial. Were you surprised at how controversial it became? I'll tell you what surprised me. What surprised me is that the cancel culture started in immediately after the election to 
attack any lawyers and dare any lawyers not to represent the Trump campaign in any post-election proceedings. You know, I've been doing election law for many decades, and every state has a process set out by state law for challenging the results of the election. There are provisions for recounts, there are provisions for court challenges, and that's part of the law. And what began to happen immediately after the election was that the Lincoln Project and the crazy never-Trumpers began to troll lawyers and big law firms and demand that no law firm allow any of its lawyers to represent the Trump campaign in any post-election challenges. And the first victim of that was Jones Day. If you'll remember, Jones Day was representing the president and the presidential campaign in a case involving changes in the law in Pennsylvania. And the the case was to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. So what we have is the U.S. Supreme Court hearing a case involving the president of the United States and Jones Day is the counsel. And they started getting all these attacks and they announced, look, we're just representing the president, his campaign in this one case. We've had it for a number of months. That wasn't good enough. And so they ended up withdrawing from that case. And I thought, here we go. And big law all through the Trump administration provided free legal services to many, many, many leftist groups in filing suit against the Trump administration policies over and over again, hundreds of times. So it's pretty scary when you get to the point that they were clearly on a jihad to keep any lawyers from any big law firms from representing the president's campaign in the post-election everywhere, not just Georgia, but everywhere. So I will tell you, it was very difficult because I'm not a member of the Georgia Bar and we were preparing a post-election challenge because there are more illegal votes included in the certified results for Georgia than the margin of difference between President Trump and Biden. That's just a fact. We have documented that. We know who they are, their names, where they live or supposedly live, where they're registered. We knew that we put together that case very painstakingly with data and experts and fact witnesses signing affidavits under penalty of perjury. But then trying to find a lawyer in Atlanta who would put his or her name on the pleadings as counsel of record, not easy. No big law firm. So we didn't have any of the advantages of a lot of associates and paralegals and all. We had a group of volunteers primarily and data experts that were pulling together all of the data and records that we ultimately assembled into a 64-page election contest petition with more than 8,000 pages of data appended to it. It's a matter of public record showing the illegal votes that are included in the certified result. But we never got our day in court because the chief judge didn't appoint a judge to hear the case for a month after we filed the petition. Why do you think the courts were so reticent, really across the whole country? You know, that is the $64,000 question, because the courts exist, the judicial system exists to keep order in our country. So you take your disputes to the courthouse instead of duels or, you know, people shooting it out high noon in the streets. And if the court system fails, our whole rule of law system fails. So to me, this is a huge attack on the rule of law. But I think that these judges 
began to be worried that they didn't want to be canceled and attacked like they saw lawyers and law firms being attacked. Some of them were Obama judges. They're never afraid, by the way, to rule on things such as Stacey Abrams' sister ruling to throw out certain registrations for the Georgia Senate runoff. We kept trying to understand what was happening, why the chief judge is a guy named Chris Brasher in Fulton County, Georgia. And honestly, he did not finally get around to assigning a judge until Jenny Beth Martin and Tea Party Patriots organized a phone campaign to start calling the Fulton County court clerk's office and his chambers demanding that he appoint a judge. So the case had been filed on December 4th, and he finally appointed a judge on January 4th, 30 days later. With all the resources of the Republican National Committee and the Trump campaign, it seems like they were deeply underlawyered. Well, they were not prepared at all. And interestingly enough, I actually had talked to Mark Meadows and to the president about this very thing in September. I said, you better be prepared for the post-election. This is going to be Florida 2000 on steroids. It's not going to be just one state. It's going to be six states or seven states or eight states. And so we need to have a whole separate team ready to deploy Monday night, November 2nd. These should not be people who are involved in anything related to the election. This should be the post-election team prepared to deploy wherever needed as soon as we know where they're needed. And they both said, yes, we should get that done. And then I never heard anything back. So no, the RNC wasn't prepared. The Trump campaign wasn't prepared. They didn't assign resources. They were caught completely flat-footed. And that I'll never understand because, I don't know, it just seemed to me that that was pretty clear that it was going to happen somewhere. And it happened everywhere. It was striking to me, partially, that they had a much longer time horizon. You have people like Stacey Abrams, who were out there two years before the election, reshaping the whole fight, and then getting the Secretary of State Raffensperger to agree to what is a non-lawyer struck me as a, a totally idiotic concept in, in terms of the agreement that they reached which basically blocked them from being able to track the absentee ballots. Do you have any idea why they agreed to that consent decree? Because they're idiots. And because Raffensperger became so concerned about his media image and how he was thought of. And I think that basically it was the Stockholm Syndrome. He was taken captive by the left and by Stacey Abrams groups, hammering him for a couple of years. As I understand it, when he was in the legislature, he was sort of a nobody, but he's wealthy. And so he ran for secretary of state. And so from the moment he was elected secretary of state, he had all these leftist groups pounding on him. And so he basically thought if he gave in to them, that they would like him. And you and I've seen that over and over and over again. He didn't really have any particular principles. Honestly, I had been there for a little over a week when I finally sat down and read the consent decree or the settlement agreement. And if you can believe this, it was signed by the lawyer who's also the lawyer for the Republican Party of Georgia. And he had been sitting across the table from me for a week. And I began to realize that these lawyers who had been the Trump campaign lawyers and the lawyer for the state party, they were really not aggressive and willing to fight with the Secretary of State. Two of them had worked for the Secretary of State, and they may, for all I know, have 
contracts with the Secretary of State's office, but they were not willing to fight with the Secretary of State. There were just so many things like that. And then there was the power structure of the Republican Party behind the scenes with telling all the statewide elected officials, you've got to distance yourself from this. We've got this Senate runoff. I kept trying to tell them, you can't distance yourself from the president or the Trump voters are not going to come out and vote again because they want to see all of us walking barefoot across broken glass to right this wrong. But they did not want to hear that. And so we literally had no help from the power structure in Georgia or really from the RNC. It was quite shocking. In the end, of course, the big difference was the decline in Trump's support for the two Senate candidates in Northwest Georgia, where there's a dramatic drop-off that was quite amazing, I thought. Well, you know, what's interesting is that these political gurus, I won't name them, but you know who they are, they believe that what was important to do was just to get past the general election and just focus on the runoff. And I kept trying to tell them, if you think that the people are going to forget about it, you're crazy. They're not going to forget. They're not stupid. And they're going to say, why should I go vote again? I voted last time and it didn't do any good. And why should I vote again? But those political guys believe, they will tell you to this day, the reason that those Senate candidates lost is because we made too big a deal about the problems in the November election. And my view is they did not make a big deal about it. And that's why the Trump voters stayed home in January. David Perdue, Kelly Leffler, man, they couldn't get away from us fast enough as we were trying to address the problems in the November 3rd election, of which there were many. And let me just say, we identified 33 categories of illegal votes that were cast and counted and included in the certified results. And in just four categories, we have records showing from publicly available government records, we have more than 27,000 illegal votes And the margin is 11,779. And it just seemed to me that that was worth fighting about. But you ended up personally paying a real price for this. Well, I did. I did. January 2nd, I got a call from the president. He was very frustrated because here we had filed what we thought was a very solid election contest. And it was nearly a month now. And we still didn't have a judge. And the president wanted me to get him some data Just give me a one-page sheet showing some of the categories of illegal votes. So we were working on that, and then Mark Meadows called me and told me that the president wanted to do a call with the Secretary of State. And I said, well, I don't really think that's a good idea, because at this point, the Secretary of State had demonstrated he was basically a liar and changed his story just about that video that we were able to obtain from State Farm Arena that they had run everybody off at 10 o'clock on election night and started counting again and kept counting ballots for another 90 minutes. And he changed his story three or four times on that particular piece of evidence. The president was trying to get the secretary of state's office. And we had been trying to do this with the secretary of state and the attorney general and the governor's office to say, we have our data. You have data. Let's sit down and compare data and try to get to the bottom of this. Are there illegal votes or not? They kept saying no. We say, well, we're showing the data that there are illegal votes. So the president said, well, maybe we can get the Secretary of State to agree to sit down and come up with shared data or whatever, which we talked about on the call. 
But we did the call. I didn't think he should do the call. The other lawyers didn't think we should do the call, but that was the purpose of the call. And he was trying to get to some closure. And unbeknownst to us, the Secretary of State's office was recording the call. Then when they released the call and the transcript the next day, there became this, you know, flurry because I was on the call and the Washington Post runs a story saying before now it was not known that Cleta Mitchell was involved helping President Trump. And so the Lincoln Project and other left wingers, I mean, I don't know any of these people, but they started uh, hammering our clients, the clients of my firm. I've been a partner at this firm for almost 20 years and it's a good firm. It's a national firm with a lot of lawyers and a lot of families that depend on this firm for their jobs and their livelihood. And these people, these leftists started trolling our clients of the firm, calling the CEOs of our clients, posting the names of our clients on Twitter and elsewhere saying, call and tell these corporations that they need to fire Foley and Lardner as a law firm unless Cleta Mitchell is fired. Our firm had to close down its switchboards in all of our offices. This all happened on a Sunday and on Monday, Tuesday, closed down the switchboards. These people were calling my partners and other lawyers in the firm. They were emailing. I was receiving the most vile, obscene, hate-filled emails, phone calls, literally hundreds of them. I saved them all, by the way. I'd like to write a book and publish all their names, but it didn't take me very long to realize that they were going to crash our law firm, and I was not going to let them get away with doing that. So I just said, I'm resigning. I'm stopping this right now. So that's what happened. But I'm not the only one who suffered these kinds of attacks. Dr. John Eastman, a respected constitutional lawyer and head of the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence at Chapman University Law School, he agreed to retire early. He has a fellowship this semester at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And when he got there, was told, well, we're still going to let you have your fellowship, but you cannot speak, you cannot teach. I told him just to take the time to write his book. One of the other litigation consultants with us, a young lawyer in Atlanta, his law firm demanded that he resign. And that's just Georgia. The governor of Michigan is saying that she's going to demand a bar investigation of the lawyers who were involved in that election contest. I mean, it's on and on and on. It's a very serious situation when you have people who are acting as lawyers, trying to provide legal support and assistance in a statutorily and authorized proceeding and suffer the consequences of that representation. I just think that's against every rule of American jurisprudence that I've ever been taught. Jack Armstrong, he's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. But it also went well beyond just the lawyers. You know, Stripe, which had been providing support for the Trump campaign's fundraising, cut them off, basically with no notice. And I've been worried because Stripe also provides the support for WinRed, which is the basic Republican fundraising tool. I mean, how much danger do you think there is at a key moment in 2022? They'll just cut them off. Well, I actually am making a presentation, and I'm working on this. I think that it's a huge danger. The entire WinRed system is built on the Stripe platform, and they can cut off the entire fundraising apparatus that the Republican National Committee and the NRCC and the NRSC has built. And look, there's a conservative organization in California that called me the same week that I was in the process of resigning my partnership to say that they had received a letter from their bank telling them that the officers of the bank or the staff at the bank had reviewed their website, decided that the bankers didn't agree with the philosophy of the organization were closing their account. There have been 
shareholder resolutions promoted by a left-wing group, Color of Change, which is a project called the Sum of Us, S-U-M of Us. And they have proposed shareholder resolutions at the last two annual meetings of MasterCard and Visa demanding that those companies refuse to process credit card contributions to any organization on the hate list of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Well, that's most every Christian organization. It's most every traditional values organization, any organization that believes that we should be concerned about any social values and really any conservative principles. We saw that the insurance commissioner in New York demanded that the insurance company doing business with the NRA stop doing business with them. Political organizations, conservative organizations are businesses. They may have a nonprofit tax status, but that's a tax status, not a business model. And they need bank accounts and credit card contribution processing and merchant bank accounts and insurance and all of those things. They need databases, all the big databases, Salesforce, MailChimp, NationBuilder, They're all left wing and they could eliminate the ability to communicate with an organization's mailing list with no notice. So while Twitter and Facebook and Amazon and all their cancellations are troubling, I'm more worried about all of these other sort of essential services on which organizations and candidates and campaigns rely that are controlled by the left. They're big corporations and big corporations are not our friends. So I'm very worried about this. It's amazing to me the network that goes from billionaires to large corporations to universities to the big foundations. So that if you looked at, for example, at how much money Black Lives Matter has raised out of all these kind of establishment groups, it's astonishing. It is astonishing. And it's particularly astonishing when you read. Of course, now I think Black Lives Matter has now scrubbed its homepage. But it's not even an organization. It's now a project of the Tides Foundation or one of the Tides Foundation entities. But they clearly state that they're Marxists. They're trained Marxist socialists. They want to eviscerate the traditional family, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if there's one thing that has damaged the black community, it has been government policies that have destroyed the black family in the inner cities. And here is this group that's supposedly helping black Americans which is do which has this fundamental principles doing the very thing that has been so damaging to the black communities all over this country. And we have every corporation in America that has funded them with tens of millions of dollars. You gotta wonder what are they doing with that money? Yeah, and it's all sort of outside the law. It's all outside the law. It's all outside the law. Well, but here's the other thing, it's all tax deductible. <laughs> Yeah, It's all tax deductible. You can't tell me that it hasn't found its way into political activity, which is against the law. Are they a C4? No, they are a project. They were originally a fiscally sponsored project, so they're nothing. They're just a group of people in a bank account, a ledger account probably. They were originally with something called the Thousand Oaks Project, which is a C3. But I think when all the money started flowing, it dwarfed. Thousand Oaks, which was is not small in and of itself, and they moved over to be a project, a fiscally sponsored project of one of the Tides Foundation entities. Tides Foundation has been one of the real menacing influences on America for many decades, and Teresa Hines Carey is now 
the president of it. But they have a number of entities both in the U.S. and around the world, and they are socialists, but they have literally billions of dollars. It's sort of a great irony that somebody who is as rich as Teresa Hines keeps supporting socialism. I know. And when all of her money was from her husband, whose family made its money building a food company in the good old American tradition. And by the way, I would really encourage you to put together a book of all those emails. I think it would be a real education for many Americans to realize how much viciousness there is that has now come into our system, but it is to civility. But at the same time, I guess I was going to ask the question, how hard do you think it would be to get it published given the number of people who have come out against publishers signing any book deal with Trump or members of the administration? Well, I don't think I'd ever even try to go to one of those traditional publishing routes. I don't think there's a publisher who would touch a book that would in any way countermand the false narrative about the 2020 election, which is nothing to see here. Everything was fine. So I don't think there's any way that a normal mainstream publisher would touch that. Just as there's not a single reporter who's bothered to read the election contest petition and the data that is appended to it. It's a matter of public record. I had a conversation with a reporter from CNN just a couple of days ago who was calling me for comment about something. And I said, let me ask you something. Have you read the election contest? Silence. I said, well, why don't you go to the district court file? You're a reporter. You ought to be able to find it. And why don't you read the petition? And once you've read the petition and read the exhibits, and it'll take you a while because we do have 8,000 pages, then why don't you call me back? I don't think I'll ever hear from that reporter, but this is a reporter who's supposedly covering it. I think that was a very safe challenge. Exactly. Guaranteed you don't have to do that interview. No, no, no. And interestingly, there's a narrative about 2020. Of course, Katie Couric says that those of us who think there may have been something wrong with the election in certain places, that we need to be deprogrammed. And I read an article in the New York Times week before last The headline is, what can the Biden administration do to help correct the false narratives of the right? And in this article, which is as supposedly a legitimate news article, although I don't think you can say the New York Times is a legitimate news outlet any longer, but they were interviewing experts who said it appears that there's a corollary between people who think that there was something wrong with the election and people who have not accepted the government's experts and advice about COVID. So now we're a syndrome. If you challenge either of those things, and now throw in there, if you challenge any of the narrative about what transpired on January 6th, and just trying to say, I would really like the facts of what happened on January 6th. But if you challenge any of that, This article is talking about how we need social services for people who ask those questions. That would be me. I need social services, and we need to be removed from the rest of society. I mean, this is pretty frightening stuff when you start hearing what these people are saying and writing in supposedly legitimate news outlets. They really are, in a sense, totalitarians. Yes, they are. 
Yes, they are. They believe that everything should be by the state. There should be one set of assumptions. They talk about following the science with something as novel, the novel coronavirus. Remember when that was the terminology? Well, it, it seems to me that you want as many hypotheses and ideas out there as possible for a novel coronavirus. It seems like that is the kind of thing you would want to have a lot of different voices, a lot of different challenges, a lot of different debate back and forth. But oh no, we have not been allowed to have that debate. And doctors who've made videos about we're specialists in this area and the lockdowns are very bad and here's why. And YouTube removes that video. And there's a group of doctors last summer who gathered in Washington for the second opinion project. And they said, here are some alternative views. We think that the government is doing this wrong or this wrong. I got over a million Facebook views blocked, taken down. And the media cheers that on. They cheer it on. I don't think our founders ever would have dreamed that the media community would use the First Amendment because they are protected, they're shielded, but now they want everyone else to be silenced. The First Amendment has protected the media for over these hundreds of years. They're never threatened, so they see nothing wrong with silencing everyone else. That's right. It's just amazing. I want to thank you for your candor and your courage. I appreciate so much your sharing with us, you know, what you've been through. I know it must be enormously frustrating, but, you know, you remember back just before Reagan got elected with Jimmy Carter as president, it looked like the whole system was falling apart. We're a very resilient country, and I'm confident that we'll break through this also. I really am grateful, Cleta, for your courage and for your commitment to preserving freedom. Well, thank you, Newt, and I want to thank you for your encouragement. You've been a hero of mine for a very long time now. Thank you to my guest, Cleta Mitchell. You can read more about fighting back against cancel culture on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Miners. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pender. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Armstrong, he's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. 
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.